Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today is September 28th, 2023, and I'm joined in studio today, as usual, by IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews. And today, Dr. Matthews, we're going to talk about, like a recurring bad dream, net neutrality is back. Seems like I'm having deja vu with this. Seems like we've talked about this before. You know, one of the problems with uh, with giving some background context on net neutrality is that you have to go back a long <laughs> way. You have to go back, gosh, it seems like maybe 15 years now. Uh, the, the really important context, and we'll get into more details in a moment, but the really important context for people to understand is that any time you see the phrase net neutrality, mm-hmm. there's a word missing. And the word that's missing is net neutrality regulation. Net neutrality is shorthand for a regime of federal regulation of the Internet. And not the whole Internet, but just the sort of backbone of the Internet, the networks that transmit the data that you're transmitting when you're acting on the internet. So mm-hmm. net neutrality does not really touch the big name brand internet companies that that you probably think of. Those are often referred to as edge companies. They're mm-hmm. they're not the backbone of the internet, they're the edge of the of the internet. So companies like Amazon, Google, uh you know, eBay, Etsy, uh Facebook, all those sorts of things, they're not affected by net neutrality. In fact, many of those companies have been big proponents of yeah, net they, neutrality they, they regulation. They yeah. What net neutrality affects are the actual network companies themselves, the phone companies, the cable companies, the fiber optic companies, the sort of the sort of backbone, the boring backbone of the internet that transmits a lot of this material. Is this what they talk about when they talk about pipes? Well, the one of the earliest iterations of net neutrality was the dumb pipes mm-hmm. era. And the idea was that if you are simply transmitting data, that that you have no right nor role to manage the data on your network, to prioritize traffic or anything like that. Uh, and, and in fact, the first op-ed that I ever wrote on net neutrality was specifically about this, because the idea was, look, these companies, they're just dumb pipes. Mm-hmm. Their only job is to transmit data. They don't have to manage their networks. And the the problem with that idea is that it's, it just ignores reality. It ignores the whole, like, if you build it, they will come kind of thing. There's always going to be an abundance of traffic on a network like that. And so the question was always, like, if, if traffic has to be sorted and prioritized, then shouldn't first responder traffic come ahead of email traffic? You know, shouldn't an ambulance trying to communicate back to a hospital the vital signs of somebody in the ambulance, shouldn't that content be prioritized over some kid illegally downloading songs over the internet? Well, since we, we're talking about ambulances and roads, if an ambulance is going and it's got its siren going, 
people have to pull over. If you don't do that, you may very well get a ticket. In other words, they yeah. prioritize well, that. In the, the analog world, their yeah. traffic is prioritized, right? right? But literally, the, the earliest iteration of this net neutrality argument was that in the digital world, their traffic should not be prioritized. And who, when you're talking about the companies that are that have this, that transmit, what kind of company, what companies are we talking about? Give me an idea. So it's primarily... Uh, Telecom and cable companies, so your AT&Ts, your Verizons, your T-Mobiles, your Comcasts, your Charter, your your Spectrum, Mm -hmm. those companies, cable, wireless, uh, and traditional telecom. So you've got a company like Verizon that is now primarily a wireless company, mm-hmm. but wireless broadband is part of this. There, there are people out there who that's their only internet connection mm-hmm. is their 5G wireless phone, or they may have like a 5G wireless hotspot in their house, and that's how they get their internet. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's those kinds of companies. But when we talk about this idea of prioritizing content, that's not really the argument anymore. Um, because what's happened since then is the broadband revolution, where these companies actually, be, frankly, because we did not have net neutrality regulations, these companies were able to invest hundreds of billions of dollars in their networks and build out the broadband network to where today almost everyone's internet connection is faster speeds than they could possibly use. I mean, most households today have sufficient internet speed so that two or three different people in different rooms of the house can all be streaming HD video. That's a big, fat connection. And it's good that you brought that up because one of the first things we should say about this is that if the net neutrality proponents had gotten their way 15 years ago in the earliest iteration of net neutrality, Mm -hmm. those companies would not have had an incentive to build out their networks and invest in their networks because... Part of what net neutrality has meant is government price regulation, government forcing you to let other people use your network. So you went to the trouble of laying fiber. You spent hundreds of millions of dollars laying a fiber network. Or if you're a cable company, stringing a coax network Mm -hmm. all across the country. If there were net neutrality regulations, the government would be able to say, well, you have to let these other companies, you have to let your competitors actually have access to your network. So if if you're facing that kind of threat, you're not going to invest the money to build out the network. You're only going to invest the money to build out the network if you could be assured of obtaining a profit over that network over time. And, you know, it, my recollection is there were concerns about it some years ago when this was, we were discussing this 10 years ago or mm-hmm. so. But the the notion is, You've got the private sector that has stepped in. This isn't re- covered by taxes. This is covered by private sector. Mm-hmm. We, I, st- I have wa- a wide range of uh, access to all kinds of things. I think there were concerns that unless we do net neutrality, you're not going to have access to everything. I think I have access to just about everything I want. Net neutrality has always been driven, honestly, I hate to, I hate to fall back on labels, but it's always been driven by progressive leftists who did not like the idea of private control of the internet networks. Mm -hmm. They work from an assumption that if you allow private companies to own and control these networks, they will screw us somehow. They will cheat us somehow. They will extort us somehow. Uh, I remember an early version of this was literally the net neutrality, when when Apple first came out with iTunes, with Apple Music, Mm -hmm. uh, that the proponents of net neutrality were saying things like, you know, 
AT&T or Comcast, they're going to ban you from being, ha- from being able oh, to have access to, to iTunes. They're going to force you to only use Comcast tunes or AT&T tunes or something like that. So net neutrality in all of its iterations has always been driven by a distrust of the private sector and the belief that only government control can ensure maximum consumer benefit. Now, we've done any number of you and I policy basics podcasts over the years about this idea that it is the private sector that drives the most benefit to consumers, not the government sector. Mm -hmm. But the core assumption behind net neutrality is we have to have the government control or the private sector will abuse their control of these networks. It will leverage their control of these networks to somehow harm consumers. Now, the, the, the funny, the comical reality of that is that in the entire history of the internet, there's only been a two-year period when we had net neutrality regulations. And that was the last two years of the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. So for the for almost the entirety of the internet, for almost the entirety of the broadband era, we have not had net neutrality. And look at all of the benefits that have come to consumers. Uh, speeds have continually gone up and up and up. Mm-hmm. Prices, if you look at, you know how you do like a... Um, per capita kind of calculation. If you look at broad if you look at the cost of broadband relevant to the speeds that are available, then the cost of broadband has consistently come down. Mm-hmm. Now you might be paying more for broadband today than you did 10 years ago, but you're probably getting four times as much bandwidth as you did four, you know 10 years ago. And you know, I can't think of any time when I've gone on the internet and said, "Oh gee, if I if I only had AT&T instead of Spectrum or if I only had mm-hmm. Verizon instead of AT&T or something, then I'd be able to get access to these things because I'm not aware that that happens." No, it, it doesn't happen. And in fact, none of the chicken little the sky is falling scenarios have ever happened. Uh it, it, it's quite comical actually if you go back to Remember, I mentioned that the only time we've ever had net neutrality regulations was the last two years of the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. So when the Trump administration came in, uh, Donald Trump uh, appointed our friend, IPI's friend, Ajit Pai, to be the chairman of the FCC. Mm-hmm. And one of the first things that they did was was pass a rulemaking called the Internet Freedom Rulemaking. And essentially, they reversed the Obama administration decision. And the progressive left was just screaming the internet is going to end as we know it. They're going to destroy the internet. The internet's going to end as we know it. And not only did nothing bad happen, but the internet has continued to grow. Mm-hmm. Uh, prices have continued to come down. Speeds have continued to go up. More and more um, benefits have been available to consumers. And what's ironic, of course, is that the COVID-19 pandemic struck after these net neutrality regulations had been done away with. Mm -hmm. And we all became intensely aware of how important broadband can be. People were using it for telemedicine. Uh, School children were using it for school. Uh, In a lot of cases, that didn't go terribly well, but they at least had access to it. Many, many professionals found out that they could work from home, and these things were all possible. Zoom meetings, you know, people were able to carry out meetings across vast distances in real time. All Still of that, going on. Absolutely. All of that was made possible by the fact that these broadband companies have, for the most part, been allowed to innovate and invest and build out without a lot of government regulation. And so what has happened over time is that net neutrality has simply become an ideological campaign of the left. And it has continued to morph. Like I said, in the first iteration, 
uh, the, the left said these big companies are going to block your access to stuff unless you pay more. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to give you some basic tier of service, but if you want access to Amazon.com, you're going to have to pay five dollars more, and if you want access to eBay, you're going to have to pay five dollars more. That was that was the sky is falling. Of course, it never happened. It never happened, and the reason it never happened is that in a free market. Businesses do not make money by screwing their consumers. They make money by serving their consumers. And this is the fundamental disconnect when it comes to the free market and business between left and right, is that the left really believes that capitalism is bad for consumers and that only the government can protect us from the evil of capitalism. Whereas for those of us who believe in free markets, we recognize that free markets and capitalism have been the most incredible boon to consumers in human history. So we don't start with a distrust of business and markets. We start with a trust in business and markets. And then if something goes haywire or something goes wrong, then we regulate. But what the progressive left wants to do is regulate in anticipation that the free market and that private companies are going to screw over consumers. So the Obama administration had it for two years. The Trump administration repealed those are things beginning to change again, perhaps? So here, here's, I want to touch on one interesting data point during that time, and then we'll go on to talk about the, the present moment, the fact that, as I said, like a recurring bad dream, net neutrality is coming back. Fascinating charts, which you can't show on a podcast, but maybe I could stick a link in the podcast notes. Mm-hmm. Investment in broadband infrastructure over a 20-year period was on a steady upstream. Every year investment was higher than the previous year, except the two years of net neutrality that the Obama administration imposed. Hmm. Because when the net neutrality regulations went in place, and we'll talk about these in a minute, what they would have made possible, all of these broadband companies stepped back and said, whoa, we are going to slow down investing in our networks until we see what happens here. So we have an absolute experimental demonstration of what happens when you impose heavy federal net neutrality regulations on the Internet. The companies stop investing or they slow down their investment because they know that marginally their networks are not going to be as profitable as they would have been under a non-net neutrality regime. Now, if folks follow this issue of net neutrality, they will run into this distinction that's Title I and Title II, okay? And this goes all the way back to the original Telecommunications Act of 1934, and I'm not kidding, okay? Nine years ago. 30, 1934, and this is these are the regulations that were essentially written to govern the old AT&T monopoly, Ma Bell. Uh, plain old telephone. This is when, you know, those pictures of operators sitting at a big board, you know, unplugging mm-hmm. a, a line from one socket and plugging it into another line. Absolutely, exactly. That is the era when these regulations were written, okay? And Title II of the Communications Act of 1934 treats things as old-fashioned analog communication services. And literally, if you are classified as Title II, you are subject to all those same regulations that the old AT&T analog monopoly was subject to in 1934, including including 
the federal government's right to regulate prices and regulate rates, to regulate service levels, uh, for the FCC to handle consumer complaints and all this kind of stuff. So if you think back about, if you're old enough to think back in the old days before the internet, when all we had was just the old AT&T monopoly, mm -hmm. uh, you would never have used the word innovation to describe that. Right. Everybody had a, a one phone. It was black. It was and black. It, it was connected to a line. Right. And data didn't move over it. You might have had a fax machine. But all of the innovation that we have seen, all the, all the wireless innovation we've seen, all the broadband innovation we have seen, has been because all of that new innovation that the FCC and Congress basically let it go and let it bloom and did not try to regulate it under Title II. But this is what the Obama administration did in the last two years of the Obama administration. The FCC reclassified the Internet. Mm -hmm. as Title II. And what that does is that takes the internet from a very light touch regulatory regime to a very heavy federal government regulatory regime. And as a lot of people have said, in fact, FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr put out this really interesting statement. And he said that it is a solution that doesn't work for a problem that does not exist. Mm -hmm. That's what Title II reclassification net neutrality is. There's no evidence that consumers are being harmed. There's every bit of evidence that consumers are being helped. Uh, but what proponents, what modern-day proponents of net neutrality want to do is essentially nationalize the Internet. Mm -hmm. What they want to do is put the federal government in control of the Internet so the federal government can dictate to companies like AT&T and Comcast and Charter and Verizon uh, here's what you're allowed to charge. Here's how you're allowed to manage your network. Here's how you're not allowed to manage your network. Here's what you have to disclose to the federal government. Da 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 da. And again, it's a it's a solution that doesn't work to a problem that doesn't exist. Now here's the great irony. Okay, well, well wait before I do that. So here's what's happened. The Biden administration, which has now been in office for three years, has been very slow to fill out some administrative positions. And one administrative position that they have been very slow to fill is the fifth position at the Federal Communications Commission. The way the FCC works is whatever party is essentially control of the White House mm -hmm. is able to have a 3-2 majority at the FCC. So if you've got a Democrat in the White House, you've got three Democrats at the FCC and two Republicans. If you've got a Republican in the White House, you've got three Republicans at the FCC and two Democrats. That's just the tradition. That's just how it's always been done. And so it took Joe Biden three years to get his FCC commission nominee through, and that just happened about a month and a half ago. Mm -hmm. And so it's no surprise that suddenly a month and a half after the FCC finally has its full complement of Democrats that, what do you know, the announcement is made that the FCC is opening a rulemaking to reimpose net neutrality regulations and reclassify broadband under Title II once again. Now, for those of us who've been following this, uh, we have been very suspicious all along that that rulemaking, that, that FCC net neutrality rulemaking has been written for years. It has been sitting in a drawer just waiting until the Democrats had a big enough majority that they could vote it through. And so that's where we are right now. The FCC has opened this rulemaking. So once again, we are facing this ridiculous threat of heavy government regulation of an internet 
of the internet where no problem has been demonstrated. This is just simply an ideological scheme by the progressive left. They want the government to be in control. Now, here's what's changed sitting here in fall of 2023. I guess it technically is fall now, isn't it, Mm -hmm. in 2023. Here's what's changed. For most of the Internet's history, it's been light-touch regulation. Then for two years, the Obama administration swung the pendulum in the complete opposite direction toward heavy regulation. And then the Trump administration came in, and they swung the pendulum back all the way back to light-touch regulation. And now the Biden administration is now threatening to once again swing the pendulum back toward heavy federal regulation. And so what this does is this gives us the opportunity to talk about, drumroll please, the major questions doctrine at the Supreme Court. Because there have been several recent decisions where the conservative-ish Supreme Court has ruled against regulatory agencies or has hinted that they're willing to rule against regulatory agencies based on this idea of the major questions doctrine. And as a a complete oversimplification, as a non-legal, because I'm not a lawyer, as a non-legal explanation of the major questions doctrine, the idea is this, that Congress through legislation gives regulators, because they're expert agencies, Mm -hmm. the ability to implement the law without having to go back to Congress continually every time something changes. Mm -hmm. But that major policy questions have to be decided through legislation by Congress. So you can't have regulators making dramatic, sweeping changes Mm -hmm. to an entire sector of the economy with no congressional action. And so because you've had this net neutrality pendulum swing several times now, it's clear that this falls pretty squarely into the major questions doctrine area. And so we've got a statement by FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr. Uh, We have a statement here by our IPI's friend at the Free State Foundation, Randolph May, Randy May, who are both suggesting that this is going to end up, this is likely going to end up at the Supreme Court, and this is likely going to end up as a major questions doctrine case. Now, as you and I were discussing sort of in prep for this podcast, Under the Communications Act of 1934, the FCC does, in fact, have the right to classify communications networks under Title I or Title II. They do have the right to do that. The problem is, when the Communications Act of 1934 was written, and then when it was revised in 1986, Mm -hmm. no one anticipated. No one anticipated the size and scope of the Internet. No one anticipated the the size of e-commerce. No one anticipated the degree to which... Uh, so much of our economy, so much of our lives, education, telemedicine, communication, socialization, e-commerce would be dependent on the Internet. So this idea of, of reclassifying a communications network has gone from being maybe a relatively minor thing to a very major thing. Mm-hmm. And so what's likely going to happen, and the FCC, every time the FCC has tried to do this sort of thing, they've ended up losing in court. Uh or getting reversed by a future FCC. So the likelihood is that this is going to either get reversed by an incoming Republican administration, or that it's going to end up working its way through the courts. And the key question is going to be, is the FCC exceeding its authority because of the major questions doctrine? Now, we at IPI 
of course, are opposed to these kinds of net neutrality regulations. We're opposed to reclassifying broadband networks under Title II because it's not necessary, because there's literally no need for it. There's no demonstrated harm. Um, in fact, there's been tremendous demonstrated benefit to not regulating the Internet. The whole reason we, that we've had such an explosion of wireless communications in this country is that wireless kind of did an end run around the existing <laughs> regulations. There were, there were no regulations for wireless in the Communications Act. Uh, so wireless was able to explode on the scene. I, mean, I think it's a, it's a clear observation just from economic history that lightly regulated industries grow faster and innovate faster than heavily regulated industries. So, you know, why would you want the Internet? Why would you want broadband networks to be heavily regulated. And there's one final kind of ironic comment that I want to make about this. The part of the internet that's controversial today are the edge companies, the edge providers, the social media networks, right? The Twitters and the mm -hmm. Facebooks and the Instagrams and the Snapchats and the Amazons. Um, people are mad at the way they moderate content. They People think maybe they discriminate against certain viewpoints. They, they're mad at Amazon for not carrying certain book titles and things like that. None of that stuff is touched by net neutrality. So if you're out there thinking, yeah, net neutrality, let's stick it to you know, Facebook or Twitter or whatever, they're not touched by net neutrality. They're, they're utterly untouched by net neutrality. So that's not a way, if you're angry at the edge companies, if you're angry about social media, if you're angry about like Instagram's effect on adolescent girls or something like that, net neutrality does not address your complaints. It, it has nothing to do with that. So where are these edge companies on net neutrality? Do they support it, oppose it, or do we know? They were, they were aggressive proponents of it in the early days of the net neutrality debate. And, and some of us are still a little annoyed and sort of blame them for that. You know, there's there's been sort of an sort of an attitude on net neutrality where you, where certain certain companies let loose the dogs of war on net neutrality and then the dogs turned on them. Mm -hmm. um, when when the edge companies were the darling of the Internet, they were happy to advocate regulations for the other guys. Okay, because they thought it would advantage them somehow. But now the edge companies are no longer the darlings of the Internet. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to give the federal government uh, strong power to regulate through net neutrality, I promise you that through mission creep, if nothing else, the federal government is going to find ways to regulate the edge companies as well. So I think the edge companies have gone from pushing net neutrality to neutral on net neutrality, to now leery about net neutrality. Hmm. So I don't think they're proponents anymore. I think they're leery about it because they're no longer the darlings anymore. Is there, are there any regulations out there that we do need, or is th are things working really well without any new regulations? So there's lots of folks who think, you know, social media companies need to be regulated. There's lots of folks who think that Amazon's too big and, you know, needs to be, you know, taken down a notch to antitrust. The, including the federal. Including the Federal <laughs> Trade, Trade Commission. Commission. Exactly. Exactly right. So there's plenty of people who think that. Uh, I don't. And uh, the Institute for Policy Innovation doesn't. But if you do think that, what you should be advocating are very targeted regulations that are designed to address specific harms and that have a chance to survive First Amendment scrutiny. 
And so far, that's not succeeded. There have been several states who have tried to pass regulations on social media companies, the way they moderate content and that sort of thing. And so far, those have not stood up to First Amendment scrutiny. Um, and, you know, a, a clear example of this is there's a lot of people out there who are defenders of the Christian Baker in Colorado, Jack Phillips, mm-hmm. uh, for not having to create a same-sex friendly cake, but they want Facebook to have to carry whatever content they want Facebook to carry. And the First Amendment parallel here is that the Christian Baker's cake is his platform and Facebook's website is their platform. And if so, if you want to if you want to defend the Christian Baker's right to not have to host speech he doesn't agree with, mm-hmm. then you gotta support Facebook and Twitter's right to not host speech that they disagree with. Because it's literally the same First Amendment principle. So wrapping things up here, you will find an enormous amount of material at IPI's website at IPI.org on net neutrality, because we literally have been working on this issue and tracking this issue since it first reared its ugly head. A lot of the stuff that we wrote about net neutrality, you know, a decade or more ago, in some ways no longer applies because the issue has morphed. But at its core, the issue has always been about distrust of the private ownership of the means of production. And what does that sound like? I have long argued that net neutrality is simply communism and socialism for the internet because it springs from a distrust of the private ownership of the means of production. And this is the fundamental argument in economics is do consumers benefit most from private ownership of the means of production or do consumers benefit most from government control of the means of production? And uh, the American experiment and the American economy has been pretty clear proof that consumers benefit the most from private ownership and control of the means of production, not government ownership and control. Well, as I've suggested, you will find a ton more information about net neutrality on our website at IPI.org. So we invite you to stop by and check out our website. You can sign up there if you'd like to receive notices of our new podcasts, new content, and upcoming events. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.